don't go into deals with with kind of cloud of mystery as to why it's making money. Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts, Justin Cook and Ace Chapman, share their real-life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now to your hosts, Justin and Ace. Welcome to the Web Equity Show. I'm your host, Justin Cook. I'm here with my co-host, Ace Chapman. This is Season 2, Episode 6. We are talking about due diligence today, buddy. Man, this is going to be a deep one. Yeah, man. We got a lot to talk about, just a ton of information. And due diligence is really critical. If you're looking to buy a website, you're looking to buy an online business, making sure you buy the right business, making sure you're not getting scammed, making sure you're not buying something that is seasonal or short-lived is really, really important. And you know, the thing with due diligence is that you know, you can kind of get it down. I mean, by the end of this hour-ish, it might go a little long, but at the end of this hour, you're going to have a pretty good understanding of due diligence, but you're not going to be a due diligence master. This takes years. And, you know, I, myself, I'm still learning. Ace, you're still learning. We still come across, you know, deals or situations we hadn't seen before. But, you know, what we want to provide here is a framework, right? We want to give people a framework, a way of thinking about due diligence, a way of thinking skeptically about deals that both protects them from bad deals and lets them kind of, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, I guess. Listen, what what I tell people is, you know, due diligence is an art because every single deal is totally different. It's built in a different way. You know, every seller has used different strategies. And so you got to go into due diligence with a more of a creative mind than a scientific mind. So you're right. You're always learning. We're always finding new uh, different things that people try to pull, like we were just talking about before we jumped on. And, you know, it's as long as you can look at each deal and you've gone through enough deals to understand what to watch out for, what to look for. That's kind of the approach that you want to take on this. Yeah, we're going to get into this. We have you know, basically four main areas, right? The first one is traffic. We're going to talk about you know, different types of traffic and you know, what to look for traffic. We're going to talk about earnings. We're going to look at the niche or the industry, and then we're going to look at the seller. And so we're going to get into depth. We're going to talk from like kind of a, again, this is a funnel, right? So you're funneling your deals down. If it's a smaller site, you may just do the first one or two things we mentioned in each section. If it's a much larger site, you may you know go all the way down even further than we talk about today. So it kind of just depends on how big the deal is and how far down the funnel it's gotten for you. The further down the funnel it goes, the more time you should be comfortable spending on it, the more money you should be comfortable spending on it if you're bringing in outside parties and that kind of thing. And then at the end, we're going to cover some kind of not-so-common deals, some not-so-common scams that we've run across that we thought were interesting, uh, you might find interesting too, and hopefully you remember them if you run across those types of deals. Before we do that though, buddy, let's do some listener love. we got a question. It's from Sean. Sean's asking about capital structure. It says, hey guys, love the podcast. I have a question about capital structure for an acquisition. What percentage of the purchase price is a traditional lender likely to finance in a deal? Do they even look at online business acquisitions or does the buyer need 100% cash? How about doing a podcast episode discussing the capital structure or some of the deals you worked on? That would be interesting. Look forward to your response. We're not doing a full podcast episode again because this is just you know the buying process. We did want to get to your question though regarding 
financing. What do you think, Ace, in terms of a traditional lender, like a bank? I know that they were absolutely against financing online businesses a few years ago. It was very rare that you ran across anyone that had done anything like that. But they're starting to open up with the traditional lenders, the banks. And I think more importantly, and more specifically to what we're doing, there are some non-traditional lenders that are getting in the game that are willing to finance as well. Yeah. So you've got the lenders that will do SBA loans. We got a couple of those closed last year. It's going to be on larger deals. You do want to come in with just a very strong financial profile from a personal standpoint. But it's also exciting to see folks like Linbo, who you guys did an interview with. And, you know, I think that's going to get more just because the returns are so high, it's going to attract a lot more lenders. But I think it's just going to take a long time. You know, it's just like we're talking about with due diligence today. I think this is a great tie in to why there aren't a lot of financing options is because, you know, doing due diligence isn't this scientific process, which is what banks like. Banks be like love being able to look at a house. They can see what the comps are. They can see what the most recent sales were. It's all public. You know, they can go to the courthouse and they know that this is real. In this space, it's a little more fudgy. So that's a big concern. The, the other thing that we just do a ton of is just raising capital from individuals. And, and so if you're looking to raise capital, that's the number one place to get a deal done. Yeah, individual investors are willing to take those bigger risks or they understand the online business space a bit better. You know, obviously you have to find those people. And I think there's speaking of this, oh, let, let me get back to the loan to value really quick. Uh, generally, the lower the loan to value, the higher chance of getting it approved and the more options you have. So if you're borrowing 30% to purchase, you're putting 70% down or you're let's say you're financing 50%, you're putting 20% down and getting 30% on a loan. That's better than trying to finance 80% or 90% of the deal. I know that Ace, you talk about ways to do 100%. And a lot of times you squeak it in there because you're talking seller financing, right? So you know, mm-hmm. you, you borrow 50%, put 10% down uh, yourself and you know, f- seller financing for 40%. So those are the ways that some of the deals are done today. But what I want to get back to, I think is really interesting in our space is you know, the fact with the crowdfunding, right? Raising money from outside parties on a small scale, and the peer-to-peer lending stuff, I think there's going to be some really interesting opportunities that pop up there. So you've got all the peer-to-peer guys right now, you know, people borrowing money, a bunch of people pooling five bucks, hundred bucks, 20 bucks together to get these people loans. I think there might be an opportunity for some type of business like that in our space. So a whole bunch of people are investing in that. They're getting a return. They're allowing you to borrow the money to buy a business. We're still, I mean, we're, you know, like we say all the time, this is the wild west, man. I mean, it's really early in our industry. So there is nothing that I know of that does that exactly today, but I see it coming. I think I would try to, if we weren't doing other projects that I think already have bigger opportunity, I think that's something I would do. I think I would try to get into that because I think there's gonna be value there. What do you think, man? I agree. I agree. I think long term that will happen. I was really excited when they passed the crowdfunding act or the jobs act that included crowdfunding. And uh, but they really the SEC have just made it very, very tough. There are a lot of laws involving crowdfunding that just for this space is one of the reasons that, you know, you see so many real estate crowdfunding platforms. 
And, you know, we get people to contact, man, why, why aren't you guys doing this? Like, this should be done. And it's like, man, once you dig in, you know, we did some research into trying to do it. I think you guys may have. But it gets to be a pretty just arduous when it comes yeah. to being in compliance with the law and, and you're doing Internet deals. Yeah. So we're actually coming out the other side of the gauntlet right now. Like as of like right now, Mike is raising money for our investor program. So in, yeah. in the process of looking at all this, I mean, we looked at broker dealers. There's, there's actually a company. And wow, this is an aside. And we have a long episode. But I, want to, I want to talk about this real quick. It's really interesting. There's a third party company. And I don't remember the name right now. But they kind of set up the platform for you to crowdfund. So they act as both escrow and they can act as the broker dealer in terms of putting all the investments together and you put the terms on there and everything. And then you can just, they, people can go to your site, you put some code on there, they pay securely through your site, they can wire the money, they can ACH it, and they hold that money in escrow. They've got a nice little reporting back in. So when you're raising the money for deals like that, they are the platform that allow you to do it for a bunch of different people. It's fascinating to me. I mean, if they're building the platform, they know that it is coming. Right. They know yeah, they're they're exactly. at least hoping. They're at least hoping that those companies are gonna start coming in. And the way we're doing it, we're doing a limited amount of investors for a large amount of money and we're doing two hundred thousand dollar minimums. So it didn't their software wasn't as valuable to us today. But if you were doing like five thousand dollar, three thousand dollar chunks like a REIT, like one of those online REITs like uh, you know, Realty Shares or Fundrise or something, <laughs> I think if you're just trying to get started in that, their platform is fantastic for that. So that's my aside. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I don't remember the name, but I'll put it in there. Anyway, I hope that was helpful, Sean, uh, in answering your question. And uh, if you have any others, obviously, just leave a comment in the show notes here, and we'd be happy to answer follow-up as well. All right, man, let's get into the episode. Let's do it. All right, buddy, season two, episode six, we are talking about due diligence. And I think, you know, as you said at the top of the show, due diligence is, you know, very website or business specific. And just the truth is that there's no way we could cover every single scenario in a one hour, in a three hour, in a 10 hour podcast. It's just not possible. So, you know, our idea here is to really wrap this into a framework that can help our listeners develop their own kind of rules in terms of their due diligence process. Yeah, you know, it takes a lot of experience to get really good at this. So you want to tread lightly. I mean, there's nothing worse than getting phone calls from people who jumped into this space. They spent their life savings because they were really excited about getting their first deal. And, you know, $300,000 disappear from their future retirement because they got into a deal. And I'm like, okay, so tell me what kind of due diligence you did on it. And they're like, well, I kind of just went with my gut. It's like, <laughs> that is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, man. The, the last preparatory thing I'll say about this is that, you know, it, it's hard to talk about every business scenario. Like if we're talking about an Amazon affiliate site, that's going to be different than an Amazon FBA business, which doesn't have a website attached and doesn't have analytics and, and all these things. So some of these are going to apply more to others as we go through them. But I think a lot of them apply to most businesses. So hopefully that'll help you. All right, enough about that. Let's get right into it, man. First thing we want to talk about is traffic and customer flow. And we have a few different bullet points we want to talk about here. The first is, you know, for at Empire Flippers, we require for analytics on a website, either Google Analytics or Clicky. And the reason for that is that there are a lot of, 
you know, server-based traffic measurement, stack counter, and things like this that can be manipulated, can easily be faked. And so, you know, these third parties are not as easy to fake. It's, I'm not gonna say it's impossible, but it's very, very difficult. So, you know, you have a much, much better chance at looking at the actual real traffic that's going to the site. And it's really easy to parse and use once you've done it a few times. If you're looking at sites with all different types of traffic platforms, you don't know which ones are real. You don't know which ones are legit. You don't know how to read them. So it makes due diligence take a lot longer. So our, our idea is, look, if we've got Google Analytics or Clicky, some people are scared of Google, our buyers get used to reading traffic on those platforms and it makes it easier for them. Yes. And when you get used to digging into these, it actually can become fun. Or maybe I'm just a, a nerd at this point when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, you're nerding but, up there, dude, for sure. Uh, fun looking <laughs> at analytics. All right. All right, buddy. Yeah, you get into Google Analytics. And Google Analytics, I love. I prefer it over Clicky. But you can do so much with it when you're comparing the traffic and you know you can have graphs and kind of see what's going on and dig in and you know what's happening with this source what's happening with that source sometimes a, a site can be growing in traffic but you notice that their seo traffic or their direct from or their google traffic is going down maybe their direct traffic is going up or their social media and so it tells you the story of what's going on with that website and really dictates the questions that you need to ask. And one of the questions that you should always be asking yourself is, does what I'm looking at make sense? Does it jive with what they're telling me? Yeah. So they're telling you what's going on and, and you know where they're getting traffic and all that stuff. And if you look into analytics and something isn't matching, that should be the red flag. Yeah, you're looking for lies, right? If they lied and listening, if they lied in the interview, when you talk to them, if they lied, you know, at any different point, you know, it may have been a mistake. And if it was kind of a, like an esoteric point or something, then maybe, you know, they're like, I wasn't very clear on this, then you can ask for clarity. But you're looking for discrepancies to see if they are lying. You want them to lie. And when I say you want them, you want to catch them lying or where the information's wrong because it's like easy answer. You're looking for an easy answer. You're looking for an easy no, right? And this sounds really negative and skeptical, but when you're doing due diligence, you need to be negative and skeptical. That's the point. You're looking for a reason to deny this and move on to the next one so you're not wasting your time on a loser anymore. So, okay, so the first thing, Google Analytics or Clicky, you're looking at are these real visitors? This is most important if you're using an AdSense type site, if you're using like a lead gen type site. Anytime you're getting paid per click, you definitely don't want bots. You don't want all this spider traffic. You don't want fake, you know, they have robots out there that go through and click on ads. And they're clicking on ads and getting them paid that way. That is not conducive with the AdSense terms of service. And that you know, site is going to be at serious risk. It may look like they're making a bunch of money in their AdSense account, but it's all going to be fake and it's going to come raining down in a house of cards. So when you're looking for real visitors, what we look for are you know, are large portions of the traffic coming from a small range of site on, on time, right? So like, are they spending, let's say, for example, that 70% of the traffic or like huge gobs of traffic are coming, they're spending less than 10 seconds on the site, right? Most traffic will come, they'll spend three minutes, some will spend 20 seconds. But if a huge percentage of the traffic is coming and spending less than three seconds on the site, that's a problem. It's very likely that it's bots. It may not be they're doing, but they've definitely got some kind of bot or spider traffic. I also look for, like sometimes what these bots, they're getting sophisticated. What they'll do is if you're looking across the US, it'll come from different states. When you start narrowing down to cities though, you'll see a huge hub of cities that aren't necessarily 
major, you know, <laughs> hubs of people, right? So if you see, if I see yeah. way more traffic coming out of Sacramento than Los Angeles, for example, in California, that's weird, right? Unless it's a site, you know, particularly tailored to Sacramento for whatever reason, right? So if it's worldwide, if it's, you know, countrywide, and a lot of the traffic is coming from these weird little hubs that aren't necessarily hubs of people, that could be a bad sign. Also, uh, from countries that aren't relevant. So if I'm looking at the traffic and, you know, it's a site about, I don't know, lampshades, you know, that people buy in the U.S., different types of lampshades or whatever. And there's a whole bunch of traffic coming from Pakistan, right? I have to look at that critically. <laughs> well, why is that traffic coming from Pakistan? And I'll look at the traffic from Pakistan specifically and try to drill down on what the problem is and, and why it's that way. A lot of times when you see that, You'll see that that traffic from Pakistan, you know, it's maybe sixty percent of the traffic. You're like, that's weird. You drill down, you realize, oh, they're spending less than five seconds on the site. Oh, they're clicking and trying to get paid. Oh, I get it now, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like you said, Justin, it's basically we're building this funnel. Deals are coming down, and at every step in the funnel, you're changing what you're looking at. So at the very beginning, you're going to get screenshots, and that's really valuable at that point. It kind of gives you a picture of whether it's worth spending time on this deal or not. After that, you may talk to the seller. You may get a video like, hey, here's what's going on with the site. Here's the back end, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, either one of those can be faked. It's really tough. I mean, they're, they're really, you got to give them A for effort if they do the video and they fake that because that's a huge pain, but it can be faked. So at some point before closing, you want to try to get access. I mean, I really just don't do deals without access at, at this point. But, you know, if there's some reason that you can't or, or whatever, at least get them on a live video, have them walk you through everything and make sure that, you know, that it's live, you know, talk to them, have them stop, have them go back. And that can be an alternative to getting access. Yeah, Ace, you're totally right. Screenshots can be faked. And, you know, you normally see this. It's so crazy. You normally see on the smaller deals for the larger deals. I guess people won't bother. But anyway, you see this on the smaller deals, like fake screenshots. And sometimes you can spot them, but I wouldn't even bother. You always want to get access, right? There's no harm in giving you clicky or Google Analytics yeah. access. Get it. And then once you get it, you can make your own reports. For whatever reason, say they're really skeptical and they won't let you in. A video, again, can be faked. In fact, a live walkthrough can be faked. And, and I'm not terribly technical. Someone listening to this podcast is going to know exactly what I'm talking about. But basically, they can set up a local copy of Google Analytics like on their machine to where it looks like you're on the website, but you're not. And so if they're just kind of walking through the steps and like following a process to show you what it looks like, they can have it all fake to look like you're on the site. If you ask them to change date ranges or start changing things that they weren't planning on doing, it can throw them off and kind of ruin their facade. So if you're doing a live you know, screen share, have them change certain aspects of it to where you can get a better picture of it. That's the best way. The best way is access. The second best way is to throw them off a little bit. So you know, the only thing, other thing I'll mention about Google Analytics or Clicky is that you want to look at the conversion rates and like the revenue per user. So are they, is an e-commerce site, are they converting 25% of the traffic to buy the products? That's odd, right? Like 1%, 2% makes sense. Maybe even 4% if they're crushing it on conversions, but 25, 30% would be really odd. And you know, for like an AdSense site, if they're making a buck 50 per visitor, not per click, but per visitor, that'd be really weird. That means if one in 10 is clicking, they're getting $15 clicks. So I, I would 
take a much closer look at that in terms of the traffic. If it's in the range of reasonability, that's fine. And the only way to know that is to work with over time. So like a five cents per visitor on an AdSense site is fine. Even 50 cents, 70 cents on a visitor for an e-commerce site might be fine. And you'll learn this stuff over the time. But you want to keep a record of all the earnings per visitor, you get all the sites you're doing due diligence on and you can start to build a profile. And you know anything in the box is great, outside the box needs to be checked even closer. Second thing around traffic and customer flow I wanna talk about is the visitor to customer flow. Now, this comes about because, you know, Joe and I at one point were looking at an e-commerce site, I think we were doing vetting, and you get down to it and you go through the process and you can't actually purchase, there's a problem with their cart, you can actually purchase the e-commerce products that were for sale. So, you know, if the customers are having trouble even purchasing the products, where are those, you know, how are the customers getting through, right? There's a serious problem there. <laughs> so, well, it's kind of interesting. So if you're looking to buy this business, go through, buy the product, tell the seller afterwards, hey, you're on refund that or whatever. I was just testing it out because I want to buy your site or whatever, no problem. But go through the process as a customer, see what the customer experience is and make sure that it actually works. Yes, that's something that you would be amazed at the number of people who like uh, just buy things like, hey, have you bought the product? I mean, even if you are, you know, buying, you're buying a $200,000 site, it can be really valuable just to know what the product is. And as we get into these FBA deals and dropship deals and manufacturing, it could be something. And we'll talk about some of the issues that people pull where the manufacturing quality is quickly going down. The seller of that has no control. They realize they're starting to get a few more complaints and they end up with products that aren't, they buy the business and the products aren't really the products that help that business grow. So, you know, you want to buy it, you want to go through the process for this reason, but it also makes sense to own the product that you're going to be selling. (laughs) For sure. You know, when we're talking about visitor customer flow, I think this is also really important for info products, right? So, now, if they had selling an info product ebook or whatever, some kind of course, it's worth going through, making sure you actually receive the course. Are you receiving the course? Is the course of quality? Is it interesting, right? Um, as a customer, are there any follow-ups? What happens if you didn't get the course? Where did the email go? How many do they have? If you abandon the cart, do they have an abandoned cart follow-up? And I think that works for e-commerce as well, right? And not so much to where if they aren't following up on their abandoned carts that it's the site's no good or the business isn't good. No. But it's definitely a reason for or a point of opportunity for you. And that's something you can mark down and say, hey, they don't have an abandoned cart procedure. I think you know we can do a really good job. Actually, we got a great guest post on Empire Flippers about abandoned cart follow-ups. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's fantastic. It's a really good read. But yeah, I think- I look, would agree. Yeah. The, the, you know, we call it like basically due diligence. And then there's opportunistic due diligence where, you know, you're doing due diligence to see, is this a good buy or bad buy? But then you're doing the due diligence that what are all the opportunities for growth? And not just like, oh, I think, you know, this product may sell or that kind of thing. But, you know, when you're looking at if we upsold, downsold on the back end or had a abandoned cart follow up. I mean, these are things that we know, whether it's a 0.5 percent increase or a 20 percent increase those things are going to have an impact on the bottom line. It's not to say that that's a part of like making the business a bad deal. Yeah. That's what makes it a really great deal. Yeah. And so what we mentioned that, and this is just again, right? We mentioned the looking for upside. I'd say that's, you know, 20% of your due diligence. Like your due diligence should really be focused on 
reasons to say no to the business. And the reason I say that is because a lot of people, their due diligence process is like selling themselves. Yeah, they're going through, they're like, oh, this is why I should buy it. Oh my God, I could totally crush it with this, right? And they miss the critical piece. And so I think the critical piece should be up front and center and you know, keep notes on the things where you can add value later because you're going to come across them as you're digging through the business. So I think we've covered the visitor to customer flow pretty well. The only other thing I'd say is like for lead gen sites, if you're, you know, someone goes through, let's say it's a medical education niche and, you know, you put your phone number, you put your email, your name and stuff, do that. Go through, fill out your phone number, fill out your name, whatever. See who you get sold to. See who calls you on the lead. See who's trying to get in contact with you if it seems legitimate. If no one's contacting you, then, uh, you know, what's going on? Like, how are they getting paid for these leads and no one's following up on them? I mean, one time it's possible that hap- could happen, but if you've done it several times and you're not getting any follow-up at all, there's something interesting there you need to dig deeper into. All right, man, third point under traffic and customer flow, I'd say is sustainability and scalability. Sometimes you'll see this in a business for sale that you know it's getting a ton of traffic, it's getting a ton of attention, and it's because it's gone viral in some way. It made the first page of Reddit. It's getting a ton of traction on Hacker News. People are going crazy on Pinterest or whatever. And that's great, right? But you might not be able to count on that going viral all the time. I remember not that long ago, there was a the glitter site, right? Send glitter to your enemies or like you send it to them, yeah. open it up, it's a mess. And that's, you know, they had a ton of orders coming in, but that was, I mean, that's not going to be a long-term sustainable business, I don't think. We'll see in a year, two years. I'd bet, I'd bet no one's going to be crushing it in that niche two, three years from now. So what you want to look for is you want to look for and make sure there's a repeatable and sustainable process for traffic. So, you know, will that traffic continue? Are those traffic channels solid, right? I think that's an important thing. And again, you want to think like a skeptic, right? What are, when you're looking at traffic overall visitors, what are the weak points? What could cause the traffic to go away? What would it look like? And what would I do after I purchased it? If that catastrophic thing happened, if that the biggest weak point in the business happened, what would be my next step and how would the business continue and what would I do to continue it? If you look at these deals and you know the most important thing is longevity. If you look at a deal and there's a huge pop or there's a certain event or you know we kind of call it the situational profit opportunities where there's just this specific situation and they made a a lot of money, we walk away from those. You want to make sure that there's longevity. And so you've got sustainability on one end of that. And then the other thing is, are there specific things that you can tweak in the business to help it grow? Because when that catastrophic event happens, and you know you realize, oh no, we got hit by Google and this thing's gonna go down. And there's some deals where that's just the case and, and you don't have any levers or, or pulleys and things you can go into that business and do to get it back to that sustainable level. That may be a deal that's not right for you just because you don't know what to do. So don't go into deals with, <laughs> with kind of cloud of mystery as to why it's making money. Yes, yes. Oh my goddess, yes. If you're going into it going, wow, this is magical, right? I'm going <laughs> to ride this magical unicorn home. That's not going to be good for you. <laughs> you're missing something for sure. If you look around the room and you're looking for the sucker, right, and you can't find him, it's you. I think that's the... Yeah. 
That's the yeah. issue. And I know, but it, it totally does happen. I mean, you know, it happens to everybody. So, and it's scary. So, the last thing I think we say about sustainability or scalability is that if you're more analytical, I think this will help. This helps me is I'll do the Ben Franklin, right? So, on one hand, I'll put the absolute best case scenarios that could happen with this business. Like, what would I do that would absolutely crush it? On the right side, I'll put the absolute worst case scenarios. I'll try to assign a percentage. So maybe 10% chance of this happening, 15% chance of this bad thing happening, 30% chance of this good thing happening. And then I'll try to weigh them out and I'll look for positive opportunities. So it means worst case isn't, let's say there's one great case and one worst case. The worst case isn't quite as bad as the upside on the good case, right? So in that case, you know, it's okay. I mean, everything else, all other things being considered, I'd say that's a better site than others in terms of targeting. All right, I mean, I think we've said everything we're going to say for now about traffic and customer flow. Let's talk about earnings. And the first thing I the have... The money. Yeah, the money. <laughs> uh, the first thing I have, I'm not sure this is the most important, but it's the first thing I, I put down here is, you know, you have to look to make sure that the claimed earnings, you know, whether it's in the listing or it's in the Amazon account or wherever, the claimed earnings are only coming from that site for sale, right? Um, And the reason for this is you can use the same Amazon code, you know, the code that gets you paid on multiple sites. So I could have the same Amazon code on 50 different sites and try to pass it off as if that code were only from the site that I'm selling. And so you can actually, and we're going to mention this later, but there's a bunch of different ways you can reverse look up the person, look at other sites they own. A lot of times it's just worth asking, like, is this on this side? Is it on the other sites? And and that kind of thing. And most people are going to be pretty straightforward, but it's also worth digging into again, because you're being skeptical. Have you seen this before? Absolutely. It happened a lot more years ago, but the, you know, it's just one of those very easy things to do. And what's a little more scary with this is that literally sometimes the person doesn't remember. You know, if you're dealing with a site that was built maybe three years ago and they just didn't take the time to create a couple of codes and they notice like, oh, man, I'm making a bunch of money with this code. You know, with people who have portfolio of deals, it can be tough to just keep up with everything. They forget, oh, yeah, I did you know, throw up these couple of other sites that are getting a little bit of traffic and I just use that same code because I didn't feel like going back and it was easier. But you, one of the keys to this is what we talked about earlier, trying to make sure that everything makes sense. And the more deals you look at, the more time you spend doing due diligence, you'll be able to look at it and, and kind of start to get a feel for, man, this is really weird. You know, normal conversion rates when sending folks to Amazon should be this. They're getting this amount of traffic. That looks completely out of whack. And you can at least question them, like you said, Justin. Yeah, the second thing with earnings is one of the things you should do is compare their stated earnings to the bank account deposits. So if they're saying on their profit and loss that they're making this, that they're depositing this much in their bank account, is that actually what's coming up? So get their bank records to see that they're depositing somewhat close. And sometimes it's going to be a little off. Like you, it may be over the quarter they deposited, you know, $32,000 and you look at, at that particular quarter and it was 31000 Oh, because they made up for it in April, right? In the first month of Q2 or whatever. So it might be a little bit off, but it has to be pretty close, right? And if it's not being deposited in their bank account, where is it going? They're taking cash <laughs> deposit? Like how, how is this working exactly? Because you follow the money and it's got to be there. And if it's not there, there's a problem. 
Yes, always follow the money. And, and that's just doing due diligence on anything. Yeah. And you can look at this yourself. I don't think you necessarily need an account, especially on the smaller deals. Um, but you can ask for those accounts to make sure that money is being deposited. You can review their PayPal and make sure the money is actually being deposited. If it's, you know, plus or minus, you know, 20% as a rule, I think is relatively fair. If it's more or, or less than that, then you need to dig a little further and find out what's missing. The third point in earnings, this is definitely true for larger purchases, you can bring in a professional, right? So if you are regularly shopping deals, larger deals, let's say 100,000 plus, having an accountant that you work with that have them put together a service, have them work with you on the deals and start to help you with your due diligence can be very, very helpful. And and here's kind of what I'm thinking is that, and here's why I'm thinking it's helpful. A lot of times someone new is going to look at a lot of deals. So they're going to kind of keep digging through, digging through, and, and they may spend a ton of time and not actually get any deals done. And that's bad, right? You don't want to be just a shopper all day long. You want to actually find something good. By paying a professional, an accountant to come in and actually run the numbers, number one, you're going to make sure that you're not sending them junk deals. So your filter at the top is going to get better. You're not going to send them junk deals because you're not paying them. Maybe you're paying them 500 bucks or 1000 bucks or whatever. You're not going to want to send them a yep. bunch of junk deals and spend 1000 bucks every time. <laughs> the other thing is, is that, you know, they're going to be, every time you pay them and you don't do the deal, right, it's costing you money. So if I'm looking to buy a $200,000 deal, it might be worth it for me to have them look at five or six deals. If they're looking at 30 deals, that might not be so good for me, right? So it's going to kind of force you to, you know, for lack of a better word, shit or get off the pot right? You're going to have to start making some moves and you can't be shopping all day because it's costing you money. Yes. When you are dealing with these folks, it does force you before you send them anything to make sure that you're not throwing away money. But the other thing that it does do is they're going to come in with the most skeptic eye ever. And you have to understand and you be able to balance out the real from just lack of understanding and knowledge about the space. So just like we were talking about earlier in on the podcast, when it comes to financial institutions, they're very leery of the space just because they don't understand it. And, and as we're going through these things and giving you guys understanding of the due diligence, these are the things that they don't really understand. So they end up being these kind of deal killers when it comes to this stuff which there's a pro and a con. When you understand that you're dealing with somebody who is a deal killer, that at the end of the day can be empowering because they're going to give you every possible negative scenario. Yes. Now, if you can listen to that and continue and just you know make the right decision, it could be that it's actually a bad deal or it could be that it's actually a great deal. But you want to go into these relationships and working with the attorneys, working with the accountants, and take what they say with a grain of salt while you yeah. do understand their advice. Yeah, if the accountant is looking at it, they're like, look, these numbers don't match up. I'm probably going to lean on the fact that they know that business, right? Okay, exactly. well, great. Now, if they're telling me, hey... You know, I'm not sure that this marketing approach is great. Okay, great. Well, I'm the decider here. You know what I mean? Like, this is my deal to make or not make. And I don't trust your expertise in that area. So, you know, I don't know. I'll just mention this as kind of an aside. But if you have a big thing you're thinking about doing or trying, right, and it's risky, right, and you bring that to family or friends, like, this is a really risky thing, but I think I want to do it. From their perspective, it's a lot easier for them to tell you, 
you know, to wish you well, but to tell you, no, I don't think you should do it. If you're asking for their advice to tell you, no, I don't think you should do it. And the reason is because things are, the situation as it is today is better than the potential risky situation in the future. They don't want to put you at risk by giving you advice, having you blame them. And like lawyers and accountants are like, you know, times 10 at this, right? So they don't want your yes. blame. They don't want you to come back to them. So they, you know, that's why we call them deal killers. But I think they do fill a valuable role, especially when they're digging through finances and looking for things that you might not have noticed. All right, man, I think we're through earnings. I think we've kind of worked out a bit of a framework there. Let's talk about the website, the niche, the industry, that space. So the first thing we want to look at, and this is with websites, particularly if there isn't a website associated, it's not as important, but you're going to want to look at the quality of the content. Now, this is pretty subjective, right? But I like to ask myself a question. Is it true that a reasonable person would get value out of the site? Could a reasonable person go to the site read the content, and find it valuable. And a reasonable person is not always me, right? It may be a subject matter that I'm like, oh my, this is horrible. I hate this idea. But, you know, it doesn't have to be me. It has to be a reasonable person, maybe maybe on the other side of my political spectrum or whatever, right? But it has to be a reasonable person that would think <laughs> this. And what you can do for this is get a few opinions. Ask friends, ask peers, ask the person standing next to you to read that and see if they think it's valuable or is it junk, right? Sometimes when you're in the middle of the deal, it's easy to say, ah, oh, you know, you kind of skim it. And you're like, ah, oh, it seems kind of useful. But you get someone else to read it and they're like, well, what, did a robot write that? Like, what is this? Yeah. And you see a lot of deals where, you know, it's sometimes it, it may be that a robot wrote it, it spun content. Other times it may be that just a kind of low quality outsourcer or, or VA wrote it. And at the end of the day, it's just not good content. In some cases, and we've done this before, where we get a deal, it's on a subject matter that people are very hungry for information on. And, you know, it could be something medical or, or whatever. And when you get into those types of deals, the people will struggle through terribly written content just because they need the info and they're very hungry. And so, you know, when we're talking about the opportunistic due diligence, that can be one of those places where instead of being kind of suspicious about it, it's like, man, if people are willing to spend average 11 minutes on this site reading this terribly written, you know, robot looking content, if I go through and get somebody and, and actually pay to get some great content on here, this thing could be a great site. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's interesting. But you have to remember too, if you're going to do this, if you change the content, especially significantly, you yes, change that the yeah, particular item or whatever, or the particular headline or whatever, you may change in the rankings. Now, if you improve it, we would hope that it would go up, but it may go down, at least in the short term, may go down overall. So you may see some change in the rankings, at least temporarily. So know that mm -hmm. you're taking a risk. But in general, I think I say better content is a good move. Good. Yeah. Move. Well, and the, the other thing to think about with that is just adding additional. So, you know, you, you have the old stuff. It's bringing traffic in. You can actually have links on those pages to the better content. And so you want to think creatively when you're doing that. And so the, re the reason why this matters, look, I'm a business guy. I don't particularly care. The content is horribly spun and robotic and it makes me a ton of money. That's what I care about. But here's the problem. Here's the issue is that Google is looking to and Google algorithm is getting better and better. So if you're basing on organic traffic and the content is really bad, really spun, robotic, whatever, 
are really keyword stuffed. They're getting better and better at determining that and pushing those down in the rankings. They want quality content up in the rankings. And so there are problems with Google algorithm. Uh, people are manipulating on a regular basis, but it's getting better and better. So even if it works today with that kind of crappy content, will it work tomorrow? Will it work next month? Will it work next year? And those are open questions. The second thing about the website niche or industry is will the niche or industry last? And so one of the things to look at here, are there any like, pending or recent legal issues in the niche? To give an example, Joe and I, my business partner, had a business we were building back in like 2004, 2005, and it was in the gambling niche. It was We had a site, we we're going to build a site called randombet.net. Is basically where friends or you know non-friends, people across the country can bet on just random things. And you had this like bet board and you can go in there and bet on these things. We thought it'd be fun. And we were getting into it. And it was right around the time where they were totally changing the way you're allowed to bet in the United States, like whether you're allowed to do that. This was like when online gaming was still big. Everyone in the US was playing it. It was like kind of a gray area. I ended up bailing out of it. Joe went down to Panama to set up the business and the bank accounts and we were still targeting US customers. And you know, that was an interesting niche. I think we could have possibly made it work. If they'd have made it legal, it could have paid off hugely. Uh, but you know, yeah. we you have to know that you're going into a potential risky area. And I think if you're looking for niches today that have that thing kind of hanging over their heads, it'd be like the e-cigs or the vape niche, right? Because there's some yeah. pending litigation that could shut that down badly or at least harm the industry or the industry in a particular area pretty badly. Now, there's a flip side on that too, right? If it goes the other way and things go you know, well for them, or a bunch of other competitors go out of business, it could be particularly good for you. So it's just a higher risk-reward scenario. Same thing goes with hoverboards, right? You know those like little two-wheeled things yeah. people riding around that irritate the shit out of the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> those, those things. So you know, they, Amazon just recently stopped selling them. There's a question as to how long those are going to last, whether they're a fad. So you know, that's something to look into if you're buying in that industry. It could be boom or bust, depending. So know that it's at more risk. Yeah. So you want to make sure that it's not a fad product, but it could also just be a temporary pop in certain search terms. So anything right now, because we're it's election time, having to do with politics is hot. And, you know, we're seeing on the market a few Facebook type of, of base fan pages and blogs that are, are really hot politically. And you can see that they've really gone up and things are really hot right now and they're generating a ton of income. But, you know, we all know that at the end of the election, that's going to go away. And so, you know, a lot of these, they try to make the case that, OK, we're going to sell this at a discount. And we know it's going to go down, but it's not going to go down to zero. And, you know, you'll still be able to make money. But is that a risk that you want to take? You know, other things that are, are hot are, are guns. You know, guns are hot right now. With the election uh, going on, Second Amendment yeah. stuff. Yeah, guns are pretty hot. We are have a site around that space. I know other people that do. 
and they're doing quite well, actually. So, you know, it is an election year. I think that's hot because of that for sure. You know, but the question is, will it stick after? It's an open question. I mean, we don't know. I mean, depending on who gets in and what happens, it may go up, right? Depending. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's a weird niche because, you know, when bad things happen, gun sales go up, which is really strange. So from a business perspective, you're like rooting for bad things, as horrible as that is. Which just, you don't want to be on the (laughs) side. Like you're on the side of gun manufacturers. It just feels icky, right? It feels like you're rooting for bad things. That's horrible. But it's an interesting niche. So another thing is like, let's say that someone famous mentioned it. So like Oprah is talking about that. She gets hot on the topic for a month and she's talking about it and she's just got a gazillion buyers, right? She's like leading a horde of buyers behind her and says, oh, let's go check this out and like, you know, get swamped by buyers. So that may be temporary. And if you're buying in that niche after something massive happened like that, just know that it may go back to pre-Oprah levels. Yes. Yeah. And and that's what you want to compare it to. You want to look at that event, that situation and see what the business was doing before that and kind of what the price is compared to that pre-event income. Yep. Also, you know, what is the site's history, right? So a lot of times, if you, you you can use something, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, but you can use the Wayback Machine to see what previous versions of that exact domain or that exact site look like. Sometimes people are building sites on old domains. So the domain's been around forever. It was a site six years ago, and they're building a site on top of it now. The domain's been sitting there the whole time, and they try to say, oh, you know, the site's six years old or seven years old or whatever. Totally not true. And if you use the Wayback Machine, you can actually see previous versions and see if it's actually the same thing. So if they're telling you, hey, site's been the same. I've owned it for six years. And you see it was like, and uh, you'll see this sometimes, like a, it's like an old campaign site. Like someone's running for like sheriff of whatever. And it has like Joe at a net or something and you look back and you're like what this is like some crazy campaign and now they're trying to sell like vacuum cleaners like what what's what's going on here so i mean obviously if they're lying to you about that that's you caught them good let's move on to the next one with our due diligence i think it's also it's important too because if you're looking at a site and you're looking at the history you want to know that it was in the same niche if it was in the same niche a lot of those backlinks are going to be more valid so if it had old backlinks to that site that's in the same industry they're going to be more valid than if it, you've now changed industries it's it, you know used to be a vacuum cleaner site now it's a uh, whatever it's not going to be as the links aren't going to be as powerful or as valid for your niche or industry and in getting the site ranked yeah and one of the things you want to watch out for is just that some of the traffic that may be coming at that point And, you know, it depends how you're making money, but some of that traffic may be starting to go away because it was a vacuum site. There aren't vacuums there. And so, you know, those are some of the things you want to take into consideration. Yeah, we're getting lost in the weeds here, but this is something you'll see. Another thing you want to know is, you know, did this person, and you can ask them up front, is the seller, did they create the site? They didn't create the site. Who did create the site? If you can, reach out to that person and see kind of like what their thoughts were when they created the site. You know, they might be like, who are you? Why are you calling me? But just a few questions to them may give you a bit more background on kind of how the site was created, why the site was created, and, and give you a bit more history and help you with your due diligence. You know, the last thing we can talk to you about the website or niche is what's the reputation of the business and then what are the backlinks situation. So, 
you know, one of the things we always look for, and we do this in just vetting sites, it's like an early step, is, you know, was the site previously listed or was the site previously sold? And what happened there? So, you know, we'll do a search. We can do site colon flippa.com space quotation marks and then the domain name, close quotation marks. And what that will do is it'll search all of Flippa, it's searching the site Flippa, and it's searching to see whether that site was ever listed or mentioned on Flippa. And since Flippa's been around for a long time, it'll give you a good idea. You can also search, you know, the other search terms, website for sale, and then the domain name, things like that, and see if it was listed anywhere else. And what's interesting about this is that, let's say that I found that this site was listed on Flippa three years ago, it's listed for $30,000. And I start looking through the comments and I see, oh, I found this or that. And, and some of the comments are ridiculous and outrageous, but some of them are legit and thoughtful. And so it can guide you in places in your due diligence you might not have thought to go. It also gives you an idea on trajectory. So if it was for sale two years ago and they said it was making $2,000 a month and in the listing it says, you know, when they bought it, it was making $5,000 a month. That's sketchy, right? It doesn't make a yes. lot of sense. So you found them... BSing their way through the sale. So that is a good reason to turn around and say no. So you want to look for these things. Again, you're looking for, you're skeptically looking at reasons not to do the deal. You know, another thing that I love to do on these, and you know, the thing you just mentioned, I see that a lot more on flipper type deals and all that. But you know, when you're using SMRush or Moz.com, you're looking at their backlink profile. You know, if when I'm looking at a deal that is a PBN, I think the thing to be careful of is for a little while after the most recent update from Google, PBNs became this, you know, like, oh, don't do a deal with a PBN. I'm like, well, I, I have a lot of deals that are still doing great with PBNs. So I don't know. But the truth is you have to do that work. You have to do the research and see what their strategy was. So it wasn't like Google said, OK, you know, we just we hate PBNs. What we want to focus on is, you know, is it a are there good sites in the PBN? Is it total spammy? And so everybody who was using that strategy and they were doing all this spammy stuff and they were popping up really quickly, they got hit and they start saying, oh, it's the end of PBNs. But in a lot of this stuff, the thing to keep in mind when we talk about improving the content and, and all that, you want to get into the mind of you know Google if that's where your traffic is coming from. You know, If you have an FBA deal, you want to get into the mind of FBA and you know we just had our Amazon, we just had a guy who joined our program who's a part of the original team that created FBA. And he just talked about some wow. of the pivoting that they did and how when they first started, they were getting like people sending old used lawnmowers in and just oh, crazy wow. stuff. And, and so it's interesting. You want to get into the minds of that. You know, we got a guy that's in the program that works with Google. So all those things, you, you want to make sure you understand what they're trying to do. And when it comes to the PBN or any of these things, it's not these overarching like rules. A lot of times you've got to understand what their purpose is behind it so that you're taking advantage of great opportunities and not missing out on them because you don't understand the reason behind their actions. Yeah. And what's really I'm going to back up real quick as I'm just going to say that 
for anyone's listening that's not sure what the PBN is, it's a private blog network. So when he says PBN, he means private blog network. And what this is, is people will set up their kind of like own little spider, a little network of websites. And these may be older domains, maybe older kind of authority sites that no longer make any money. And they'll have a bunch of them and they'll point links from those sites to their money sites, right? And those links have juice, they have SEO juice and they have power. Sometimes they'll link them to other sites that then link to their money sites, but there's a whole industry around these PBNs. And people at one time, yeah, it was like a year ago or something, who got really skeptical because some PBNs, private blog networks, got shut down. Google's going through and taking away the value of them and whatever. But the truth is a lot of people still use PBNs. They're still valuable, but they are risky. I mean, Google kind of with that, they kind of said, look, we're going after PBNs. If we find them and they don't always find them because they're private, some of them, if they're public and people are selling links on these PBNs, we're going to go after them. We may shut them down. If that happens, you may lose value. So that's the whole deal with PBN. So you mentioned some tools, SEMrush and Moz.com. They have a thing called Open Site Explorer. And these are tools that will give you pretty, pretty accurate information on backlinks, on who's linking to them, on how powerful those backlinks are on you know the site overall. So these are tools we use in due diligence. And what you want to look for is you're looking for disclosure. So did the seller say they were using a private blog network? It's fine if they're using a private blog network if they're disclosing it. If they're not disclosing it, again, whatever you think of private blog networks and whether they work or don't work or you want to buy a site with them or without them, if they didn't disclose a PBN and you found one, that's a problem, right? Or if you ask them point blank and they said, no, 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 I never use any links or I don't use create any links, it's all organic, natural, and it's not, that's a problem. So that's one of the reasons you're going to want to look and verify that information. All right, man, let's look at the next section. We want to talk about the seller. So here's the thing when I'm looking at a seller I'll just say I'm using, I look at this, I'm using doing business with anybody, whether it's a seller, whether we're partnering, whether we're affiliates, whatever, anything, is I look at are they real? Are these real people? Do they have a real name? Do they have a real Facebook page? Do they have real friends? Do they have real barbecues with their friends on the weekends and they comment on their pictures? Like, or is it, you know, a fake picture and their friends have kind of like a stock image photo and they say, hey, What's up? You know, like it's just totally fake. It's totally fake. And you can see that. And I have a just a rule ace. I don't do business in any any fashion with someone that I can't verify online. So I have to be able to verify you some way, somehow online. If you're not real, I because I've been down those rabbit holes, man, a bunch of times, dozens and dozens of times, and it never it's always accounts to nothing. It's crap. So you know, when you're looking at the seller, you want to make sure they're a real person, they have a real online presence. You want to be able to follow their breadcrumbs. Everyone leaves a trail. Everyone has a history on the internet. If you can't find that, there's something wrong generally. Yeah. And I don't even worry about if there's something wrong or not. I just don't deal with them because it's too easy to deal with people that I can verify. You know, I can connect with on LinkedIn, on Facebook, you know, actually be able to have a conversation. And that is just valuable on the front end to know that they're real, the deal is real, that kind of thing. But it's and it's valuable during the due diligence, but it's valuable long term to be able to reach out to them for help or advice or thoughts and, and build relationships. I mean, we're at the end of the day, this is a relationship business and the stronger your relationships are the better deals you're going to get, more money you're going to make. Yeah, I'm glad you, you have that same rule, Ace. I just, I won't do business with you if I can't verify you. And if your name is, you know, Randy Hogden 69 at hotmail.com, 
I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows? You made that up. If I can't verify your identity and you're like not so forthright in sharing your real identity with me or LinkedIn, whatever, we're just not doing business. So I think that's a great way. It's a quick way to determine whether you're going to do business with someone. As like as you said, there's lots of deals with people that are real that can verify their information. Why mess with these jokers? The yes. next thing is, and for every one deal I would miss because I, you know, there's someone who's super secret and they're whatever they're scared of i don't know someone finding them google or the government or whatever i don't care i missed out on i saved myself 50 ridiculously not going to happen deals so good luck fine i missed that deal i don't care doesn't bother me i'm happy about (laughs) it right um the second thing you want to look at with a seller is who have they done business with like if they're in business they've probably done business in the past can you contact their customers can you contact current or ex partners can you get a feel as to what it will be like to do business with them now you can take the referrals right if they give you a referral they say hey reach out to this person that's even better though because if they give you a referral you can dig a little further and find people that aren't a referral and those are the ones you really want to talk to now I'll talk to a referral I mean just to see because it's easy to just give you a bullshit name and not be real so talk to a referral but especially if it's a bigger deal or a deal where I have to work with this person a little closer, I want to know what they're like to do business with from someone who didn't promise them to give a glowing review, right? So do a little bit of uh, digging, do a little bit of Google foo and find someone else that's done business. Yeah, that's one thing that, you know, uh, folks listening to this can kind of take note of is it's really powerful to have a big profile online and connections and recommendations and all of that regardless of what business you're in, just because it helps get deals done. Like I love doing deals with people that have some kind, you know, not to say like high profile, but that have some kind of profile online. So when we we connect, it's like, okay, great. I can go back. I can see your history. I can see different businesses you've been involved in, you know, almost your resume, other folks that give you recommendations. It's a powerful thing. Yeah. You know, and full disclosure, I've never actually done this next thing. So I know other people that have though. So I'll I'll mention it is, you know, some people do background checks, right? So they'll actually order a background check on the seller. I've had sellers order background checks on buyers. That's not something that we generally do, or I've I've actually never done it for, for customers or partners we work with. But I think it's, it's an interesting idea. And even if you don't do a background check, if you've got some Google foo, you can use it and do some research. And again, I think this depends on the size of the deal. If you're buying a $30,000 Amazon site, eh, I don't know about a background check. If you're buying a $600,000, you know, e-commerce business, eh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's worth that. Yeah, I've never done that. <laughs> I figured. I, I didn't, you just see like the background kind of check guy, but you know, some people are like, oh, I want to see what the deal is with this guy. Uh, <laughs> let's talk some not. So I, I think that gives us a good framework. When we talked about traffic, we talked about earnings, we talked about the niche or industry, we've talked about things you can do to verify the seller. Let's look at some not so common scams. These are yeah. some things that we found doing vetting or doing due diligence that I think, you know, maybe our listeners will get some value out of and just put it in the memory bank. And if you run across this or think you're running across this, you know, recall this back to the top of mind and hopefully it'll, it'll save you some hassle. The first one is a uh, fake leads being sent to affiliate partner. I'll give you an example. A lot of times uh, you use, God, I forget the name. It's called Quinn street. Yeah. They do the medical education leads and they'll pay you for leads, right? So people looking to go to tech schools or whatever. 
Sometimes you'll have sellers that are maybe new with them or whatever, or they just started. They've seen a big increase in earnings recently. What they're doing is they're having random people go and fill in their first name, their last name, their email, and their phone number, and getting paid for leads that are not real. Now, you know, it's not easy to see because the traffic looks legitimate. I mean, one thing you can do is if you've seen a big increase in earnings and you haven't seen the equivalent increase in traffic, like you've seen a few, a little extra traffic and they're making a lot more money, that's something to look into. Uh, it's potential that they've been faking the leads. But what happens is they're selling those leads to a partner. Now, it may take a couple of months, two, three, four months before the partner actually catches on that these leads are fake. And then they'll cancel the deal, they'll cancel the account and you know penalize you but that might be your business by the time that happens so one of the things you can do to fight this is these fake leads being sent over is get permission look very closely when it's like only the last couple of months you've seen a big uptick and then what you want to do is get permission to speak with the affiliate partner about the site or business in most cases that shouldn't be a problem there's very few cases i can think of where that wouldn't be acceptable where like, you know, they have some kind of deal that it wouldn't work. But most of the time you can talk to the affiliate about it. So I think that's the way to fix that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just something to be, to look out for whenever you're doing the leads deals. The next one is, you know, when you're dealing with a, a seller who is also the, either owns the affiliate network. We saw, we've seen that before. <laughs> where they're making affiliate money and then you realize, you know, they're one of the partners and yeah. you start to dig deep. They're one of the partners in the affiliate network that's paying out those commissions. So you think they may have a sweetheart deal that maybe you're not going to be able to get? <laughs> yeah, that could be a possibility. The other thing is when they are the supplier. So they are either the manufacturer of the product or, you know, they're the sole provider that, you know, they've got an exclusive deal to supply the product from the manufacturer. Those are things that you want to be a little concerned about. And we continue to see those deals, you know, on the front end, we always want them to be 100% transparent and upfront about that. You know, as soon as we get into one of those and like, Oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, that is my exclusive contract. So you're going to have to still get this product for me. And that's something that we had to dig and find out. And they didn't tell us. That's bad. That's probably going to be a no-go. Yeah. So you're totally right. Being affiliate and being a partner of the affiliate overall or the provider, that can be a red flag. You know, let's say that you're buying a shoe e-commerce company, right? They sell a couple of different types of shoes. And uh, it's just an e-commerce business. They have a supplier whatever. Oh, it turns out that same e-commerce vendor is also the manufacturer. So they're giving themselves, they're selling the shoes themselves at 10 bucks. They're retailing them at 80 bucks. You buy the business, they're going to raise that wholesale cost from 10 bucks to 40, right? And now you're not making yeah. nearly the margins. Your paid traffic isn't working and you're like, what the hell happened? What happened is it was them running the manufacturer or their sister or their brother or their cousin or their friend or whatever, right? They're somehow related. So one of the ways to kind of get around this, right, is a lot of times, you know, they'll give you the contact information for the manufacturer or whatever. You want to find it independently. So don't take the name and phone number they give you. It could be their cousin, could be them <laughs> disguising their voice or whatever. You want to find that 
uh, manufacturer, you want to find that supplier, you want to find that affiliate network directly. Another way around this completely is to only buy businesses that work with larger well-known partners. So if it's Amazon, right, they don't own Amazon, trust me. If it's ClickBank, if it's Commission Junction, any of these big players, like they are not also the manufacturer, they are also not the affiliate network. They're not them. So if you're using, you know, ABC Lead Company, whoever they are, yeah, maybe, right? It could be some small lead company that's also them or their sister. Now, I will say this, I'll add this caveat that it's not always a scam, right? So I've had this question and I think it's actually a really smart and interesting way to do business where I'm a manufacturer. I want to build my affiliates. I want to build my you know retail side. So I create e-commerce stores, maybe give them different names and start selling my product, right? So and then, you know, I'm very honest about it. Look, I am the manufacturer. I'm selling the, the e-commerce side of my business. Here's how it works. And they're transparent and straight up about it from the front. I think it's actually a creative and interesting way to do business. I mean, they are like driving their own e-commerce businesses and then selling them off so they can create more and and create more. I think that's really interesting. What you want to do is you want to make sure the deal is big enough to where if you contractually obligate them to deliver products to a particular price that they're going to be able to do that and you're willing to fall through if they don't. Yes, that is a crucial aspect to doing a deal like that. I mean, otherwise you're at tremendous risk, but you're right. I mean, on their side, from the seller point of view, what a neat way to build a business. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the, the other one is sometimes you'll see this. We mentioned this earlier. The seller is claiming earnings from multiple sites as only coming from one site. So let's say, for example, I sell and we mentioned Amazon, like we mentioned Amazon code being on 50 different sites and pretending it all comes from one site. Let me give you another example. It's an info product site. I'm selling an ebook or course for, let's say, $49. And it's about uh, gardening. Right. And I've got another one that's about, you know, knitting that sells an info product for you guessed it, $49. So I've got all these $49 payments coming into my PayPal account. I show you my PayPal. You're like, oh, it's great. You know, it's very clear that you're making, you know, $5,000 a month with this site. Well, it turns out that site only makes $800 a month. That $5,000 is coming from the 30 sites that you own that are selling info products at $49. Right. So, that would be a problem for you as a buyer. You're now, you know, the earnings were wherever stated. And the answer to this, one thing you can do is use a site like spyonweb.com. I'll put a link to the show notes, but it basically allows you to reverse search by domain. You can search by analytics code. You can search by AdSense account. You can search by Amazon account. And you can find out other sites that this seller owns. Now, they can be hidden. Sometimes they don't show up here. It could be in their sister's name, their brother's name, their cousin's name. And you, you might not find those this way. But this will give you a good idea. So if I do a reverse search and I find other products that are the exact same price point, I now have to question whether those all those $49 products are actually coming in for just the site I'm selling, right? It puts a big question in my mind and the sellers going to have some explaining to do, right? Yeah. And you with all of these things, <laughs> you don't want to go in accusing the seller of a scam or trying to scam you. You know, the most important thing to each of these is really just kind of asking them questions and digging deeper because sometimes there can be a legitimate reason. Oh, God. Thank, Ace, thank you so much for mentioning that. Like the way we've been talking about this and being very skeptical and very like, you know, anti-deal. I know, yes. I know by saying this, I'm going to get one of our buyers 
prices and come in and go, you're scamming people, you seller. <laughs> and I'm like, why? And they're like, you're off by $40 a month on your bank statements and your earnings. You're a scam. And be like, oh my God, I listened to Justin's podcast on due diligence. That'd yeah. Be, that'd be horrible. To I look. totally got that vision as, ah, yeah. as you were talking. I'm like, you know, let me stop right here. Yes. Just That's a good <laughs> idea. Yeah, no. So, yeah. So, you know, as you said earlier, like this business is really relationships, right? So, you know, there are times say, look, I'm uncomfortable. Like I found this problem and there's no way in my mind I could resolve it. Right. And I think that's a fair yeah. way to say, look, I think that there may be this problem and I can't figure out a way to resolve it. And that's a fair thing to say to the seller. It's a fair thing to say to the broker. And if they can come up, because like me as a broker, right? Like I want to find a, a fair way to resolve that. Like honestly, not like, hey, trust me, right? No, trust yeah. me, it's good. Yeah. I'm like, okay, Absolutely. shit. How can I actually prove this to be the case? Because it's a good question. I'm going to have this from other buyers on this deal too. How can I show that this is the case? It's interesting. So you're like challenging me to come up with a good way to prove it to you. And you know, if the seller is a jerk about it and you're very polite and you're very straightforward about it, that's an even better reason to walk away. If they continue to be a jerk, mm-hmm. say, hey, I really appreciate your time. Unfortunately, this isn't going to be a deal we're able to go with. All right, man. So we've covered a ton of things. Let's do a quick wrap up for everyone listening. Again, just to mention, you know, we can't cover everything in this podcast. And no matter how long we talked about due diligence, we're not going to be able to cover everything. We hope this helps you build a framework for the deals that you're looking at. Again, we're talking about traffic, you know, make sure it's real, make sure the conversions and dollars per visitor are an acceptable range, start building a bank of those. So you know what that acceptable range is, and you can build it over time. And make sure that following the path from being a visitor or customer actually gets works and gets someone paid. On the earnings side, you know, only make sure the earnings are only coming from the business that you're purchasing. Compare to their bank accounts to make sure they're reasonable. And then don't be afraid to bring in professionals, an attorney, bring in an accountant, especially for the larger deals. It has the added bonus of making sure you keep your funnel tight so you're not looking at a bunch of crap deals. For the niche or industry, make sure you're looking for quality content and niches that will last. Make sure the seller is a real person. Don't do business with non-real people. Find others who've done business with them either through their referral or you know through your own Google Foo. Find other people and you can do business with. And then you know, as we said, Ace, you know, we're going to put links to everything we've mentioned in this show in the show notes. And over time, as we add new things or we think of things after this, we're going to put them there too. So you have a great bank of due diligence tools, due diligence items, due diligence content, so you can dig further as you kind of you know build out your formula for due diligence and success. I'm really excited about folks getting this episode into their hands. I think there's a huge need just for this information. A lot of folks are kind of, like we said, buying the business with a cloud of mystery around how it's cranking out money each month and just praying. And so this is a good, you know, starting place, like you said, you know, it's not the end all be all. We're not saying if you follow all this, that you're guaranteed to make money, but it's a starting place. Remember that due diligence is an art and, and get out there and do some deals. Totally agree, Ace. And when you said that, this cloud of mystery, you know, I hadn't I hadn't actually considered that before, that people were like, I'm not sure how this makes money, but it seems to make sense. I'm just going to buy it. There probably are people in that position. I think that is a bad position to be in. You are definitely in a position of weakness, and you're open, I think, to fraud. You're open to 
mistakes and mistakes that are unintentional mistakes by the seller or by the broker that they didn't even see it and you didn't know enough to look. And so hopefully, you know, this episode, we've given you enough to look. We've shown you like the places you can look. Now it's up to you to kind of like refine those over time and to find the deals that work out best for you. Yeah, man, I think it was a great episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. I appreciate you sticking with us on Web Equity Show. We'll be back next week with another show. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com slash gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show. 